Thank you, Lord, for being so generous to us and for the opportunity just to invest in the work that you want to see done in our community and in the world. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of your plans for changing the world. And so we give this morning gladly, and we ask for you to bless this and multiply it and help us to be good stewards of the resources that you've entrusted to us for your honor and glory. This morning as we start digging into your word, we pray that you would give us open hearts and minds. Help us to be attentive, not to my words, but to yours. And to your gentle stirring, if there's anything that you want to change in us or get us thinking on, I pray that you would be at work in our time together this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So while they're passing the offering, uh, I want to introduce myself. Some of you know me, most of you hopefully. I'm Alex York. I'm the associate pastor. Uh, In the last year or so, the bulk of my focus has been on youth ministry. So a lot of Sundays I'm not with you guys. I'm in the back with your teenagers and their great group of kids. And so that's been a blessing to me, but it's also meant that there are some of you that I really haven't had much opportunity to get to know. And so after the service, love to meet you, especially if this is your first time at Gateway. I'd love to talk to you. It'd be great just to meet you. We've been talking this whole month about Gateway in the last 15 years. I'm kind of late to the party. So even though Gateway is my church home, I've only been here a couple of years. And yet my connections to Gateway and to Ed go back much farther than that. In the early 90s, my family moved here from Texas. And you can throw that first picture up there if you want. This is how good looking we were. I had hair up here, not down here, but I had hair up there. And this was the Johnny Cash look, which was very popular in the early 90s. And so we moved up to help plant a church. First Baptist Church of Alexandria had an ambitious goal of starting five churches in 10 years. And so in 1990, they committed a million dollars to that. And the first church that they launched was New Hope Church, 1992. That's what brought us up here. And that church is doing really well down in Lorton now. The second church out of that process was Gateway Community Church. So I can remember when some of the people from New Hope were involved in helping First Baptist think about church planters and who would be good at doing that kind of thing. Uh, It was also around that same time frame that uh, we got to know Rob and Evie Showers and Paul and Leanne Howdershell and John Elliott through that connection with New Hope and First Baptist Alexandria. Those people were serving. And so we've known them for 20 years or more. And so when we ended up at Gateway a couple of years ago, this is like, wow, this is cool. This is with old friends. I remember kind of weird little things, rumblings going on. I heard about Ed coming from Chelsea. Turns out that Diane visited a service at another church. I was just a guest speaker, but on one of their visits to Northern Virginia to check it out, she came in and brought the boys, and I remember meeting her after the service, and it was like, what do you mean you and your husband are coming to plant a church in my neighborhood? Wait a minute, what's going on? It was just kind of interesting to meet her, and then first year that Gateway was meeting, and it was over at Flores, I got to fill in for Ed because he was on vacation. And then over the years, he and I served on a number of boards for various ministries in the area, so we interacted a little bit. So it was not a huge shift for me to come here a couple of years ago. I pastored a smaller church in Ashburn, and because of some real courageous leaders at that church, we had been seeing a a downward trend for a number of years, and we realized we could have survived for quite some time, but rather than knocking ourselves out just to pull off Sunday after Sunday, expending so much energy just trying to do, you know, the basics that we didn't have a whole lot left over to be able to serve the community and others. We reached what I think was a very God-honoring decision, and that was let's become a part of a larger, healthier church where, um, you know, we could be a blessing and, and we could share the load with other people. It would be kind of like, I don't know, it was a merger, although Gateway really didn't get a whole lot out of it. There were about, I don't know, five, six, seven couples that made the transition. There were no financial assets that came, but the good news is there were no liabilities. We, I think, ended up with like 14 bucks to spare after we paid off all of our bills and and got to Gateway. And so it it wasn't a crash and burn. We got the plane down. We found an airstrip and a very nice airport to land at. And so I'm grateful for that. But what's weird to me is seeing God in his infinite sense of humor, uh, some of the connections that he had in mind. So I want you to take a look at this next picture, and you won't recognize me in it. 
This is from May of 1952. The woman on the right, her name is Bev Dawson. The guy behind her was Daryl Dawson. They had just married the month before. That's Diane's mom. The couple to their left is Pat King, who later married Doug York, the guy behind her, the next month. So my mom and Diane's mom were sorority sisters when Madison was a girls' college. And before Diane or Ed or me were long before I was born, just a little bit before Ed was born. My mom and Bev were friends. And what's scary about this is Jill went to visit my mom yesterday and she says, you wouldn't happen to have any pictures of Bev Dawson, would you? And my mom came up with this in like three minutes. And she doesn't have digital photos. She doesn't have photo albums. And she's like, oh yeah, I've got a whole stack of photos of Bev. And so I brought some back for Diane, Bev, and Daryl from the 50s, from formals and dates and everything else. And so my mom's been friends with uh, Diane's mom for most of their lives. I don't know what that means, other than just like, that's weird. <laughs> but I think it says that God, you know, kind of has been in this from before I ever stepped onto the scene. And God's had plans for my life. He's had plans for Gateway. And at this point in time, they've intersected. And I'm really appreciative of that. Ed started earlier in the month talking about this, the making of a masterpiece, kind of the idea that we're not there yet, but God is in the process of forming Gateway into something bigger and better. By the way, Christina Gabbro, is she here? I hope you guys know that Christina Gabbro, one of her own, did this artwork, which is very cool. And kind of the idea of, you know, you can see it finally defined here, but then not so much here. We don't know what's coming next. I'm hoping it's a forearm. Um, but it's kind of exciting to think back over the last 15 years and to look ahead. So Ed's been kind of reviewing part of that over the last couple of weeks. If you've missed any of those sermons, it'd be great to jump online and to catch up because they're very important. And it's good for us to reflect back on the past. And next week, Ed is going to be talking about the future. We're going to be celebrating 15 years, but not just looking back for 15 years, looking ahead at what the next 15 might look like. This morning, the assignment is the people of God. And I think when we talk about the people of God, whether you're talking to people who are inside the church or outside the church, sometimes just that phrase carries with it this idea of like, wow, you know, the people of God, they're the ones that have it together. They're the ones who, you know, like they are so close to God and they're so diligent at working out their faith that, you know, you look at their life and it just makes you want to be a better person, you know, and and you can just tell from hanging out with them that they spend a lot of time with God and they're just holy and kind of, you know, glow a little bit. They walk three or four inches off the ground and when stuff happens, it's like they're coated with Teflon. Somebody dies, no big deal, praise the Lord. You know, there's this kind of weird, I don't know, attachment to that phrase, the people of God, that I think it happens for people outside the church. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to be with them. They're so, you know, holy, and I, I don't have it together. I don't want to hang out with people who do have it together. And then there are people in the church who are confused about that, and they think that's what we're supposed to look like. And because changing the exterior is the easiest thing to do, we put on our Sunday best, we kind of change our language. As soon as we get out of the car, we stop arguing, you know, and walk into the service, you know, so everybody thinks we're a happy family. And it's the kind of thing where... I think even within the church, we get confused about what the people of God are supposed to look like. And so while there are elements of that description, the idea that, you know, wow, just we're so close to God that we don't struggle with the same problems that other people do. The reality is that Christians, people who have committed themselves to Christ and who are trying as best they can to follow in his footsteps, they are every bit as messed up and screwed up and broken and fallen apart as everybody else. The difference is that we have a God whose mercy and grace and power is now available to us. And we're able to tap into that and in a personal relationship with him and walking through everything that we face step by step with him, we don't have to carry it on our own. And it's by his grace and his power, little by little, we're changing. And I got to tell you, there is a time when we will be perfect. There is a time when we won't hurt, where we won't be wounded, there won't be burdens to carry, and we won't be screw-ups. It is not this time, okay? And so we just need to be realistic about it. And if nothing else, chapter two of Gateway's history, we talked about chapter one last week, kind of the first seven or eight years when everything was just blowing and going and God was blessing and the church was growing and amazing things were happening turn the page, chapter 2, if nothing is a story 
about flawed people following a flawed pastor and being a flawed church. But we've been that with God's help. And in spite of that, and sometimes in spite of our brokenness, and because of our brokenness, God is able to use us. Now, if you're new to Gateway, if you're here for the first time, or if you're trying to figure out, is Gateway the kind of church I could become a part of, and you are looking for a really put-together church, sorry, there's maybe one of those around in Northern Virginia. This is not it. Hopefully, we are authentically messed up, authentically imperfect. And we are are really trying hard to be honest about that to one another and to the people around us. We're struggling. But we know a Redeemer who works in every situation. And He is helping us in our struggle and despite our brokenness, is doing awesome things. Now, spiritually speaking, the people of God over and over again in Scripture are depicted as people who are broken. I mean, in about 99% of the biblical examples, God uses people who are incredibly flawed and messed up. And you go through the entire Bible, and you can look in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and you find example after example of people who are broken and struggling and messed up, and yet God chooses to use them. We're going to look at Hebrews 11 this morning, and let me set it up for you. Hebrews, here's a clue, by the way. In the New Testament, a lot of the books that are written with weird names, it tells you who they're written to. So this book was written to Hebrews, to Jewish people who had grown up in the Jewish tradition, and they had most of them religious training and upbringing, and then they had turned their lives over to Christ. If anybody counted as the people of God, it was the Hebrews. I mean, they were like Messianic Jews, so they had the heritage and the background to understand the things Jesus was saying, and they had decided that they weren't just going to rely on their tradition or their religious life. They were going to rely on a personal relationship with Christ. So if anybody counts as the people of God, it's the people to whom this book was written. Chapter 11, sometimes this is referred to as the roll call of faith. These are like the superheroes of faith throughout the history of Scripture. These are like the X-Men of the Bible. And the writer starts in chapter 11 and just kind of rattles off all of these heroes of the faith. And so in verse 4 he says, By faith Abel did this. In verse 5, By faith Enoch did this. And he tells a little short story of Enoch. And then in verse 7, By faith Noah. And then by faith Abraham. By faith Sarah. All these people were still living by faith when they died. And then he goes on, picks up the story in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, he did this. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses' parents. And then by faith, Moses himself. And then we move on. And all of these stories of faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the prostitute Rahab. There's an unlikely superhero. By faith, Rahab was not killed because she helped the people of God overthrow the city of Jericho. And then pick up the story in verse 32. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flurry of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. I mean, these guys were awesome. So if anybody counts for the people of God, if anybody is worthy of our examination, it's these guys. But I want you to look at this passage again and think about this one phrase that stands out to me. These are the superheroes of faith, the models, the examples that godly people are supposed to follow and whose weakness was turned to strength. Now all this other stuff God used them to do But this is almost like in spite of it, God used their weakness, their brokenness, their frailty, their limitations, their sinful ways, their wounds. God used that to accomplish his purposes and he made their weakness into strength. And because of that, they did amazing things. I don't know about you, but for me, that's incredibly encouraging. Their weakness was turned to strength because an infinitely powerful God chose to respond to those who exercised faith in him. 
And because of his mercy and grace, he worked in spite of their brokenness and in fact sometimes because of their brokenness. That was what opened them up to be useful to God. And through them he accomplished his good purposes. And this pattern is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So there are passages like in Zechariah where the prophet says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by the Spirit of God that we're going to accomplish great things. Or if you flip over into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, kind of makes this very clear. Paul says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Let me read that again. I want this to sink in. God chose the foolish things of the world, things that didn't make sense to the world's way of thinking, to bring shame to the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world, the thing that the world looks at and goes, well, that's worthless. That's weak. That's powerless. God chose those things to shame the strong. You see, that's God's standard operating procedure. God loves an underdog. God is a God of justice. He blesses the weak and he watches out for the meek, and he serves those who entrust them in their weakness. And you think about it, even Jesus, God's one and only son, chose to step into humanity in weakness. He had limitations on his power. So he saw glimpses of it in his miracles, but not his full majesty, not his full power. In fact, he came in humility the first time he came to earth. There's another time that he's coming, and he's going to come in righteousness and judgment and power. But think about this. Just the time he came in humility, our culture is still echoing 2,100 years later with the impact of that. And so Jesus chose to be vulnerable. Jesus chose to be weak enough that a couple of men could nail him to a tree. But that was exactly the means by which God secured our forgiveness and made it possible for for you and me to be reconciled to a holy and perfect God even though we're terribly broken people. So God chose to display his great power through the human frailty of his one and only son. And if we truly want to be the people of God, people who reflect God's grace and goodness and power who give evidence of his work in the world and in us, if we want to be people that God uses to accomplish his purposes right now, right here, then the challenge isn't to cover up our brokenness or to pretend it's not there. The challenge is to do something productive with it. And there are two things I want you to think about this morning that God wants from us when it comes to the way that we handle brokenness. And these, in many ways, are counterintuitive to most of us. Whether we're talking about limitations or failure, or hurt, or loss, or sin, or whatever our brand of brokenness is. The first thing that God wants from us is to own it, just to acknowledge it, to admit it, not only to him, but with other people. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says that he, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, Paul wasn't just acknowledging it quietly to God in his prayer time. He wasn't just journaling about it where no one else would hear about it. He wasn't just sharing it with his close friends. He was broadcasting this to Christians all over the place saying, look, I am the worst sinner there has ever been, but if you look at how screwed up I am and you see how God is able to work in spite of all of that stuff, man, there is hope for you. I mean, I tell Ed this all the time, you know. I love having you as my pastor because broken and screwed up people, they can see a really good example of somebody who's faithful. Anyway, if we own our brokenness before God, that opens the door for so many things to start happening. So the first step is to own it, to admit it, to acknowledge it, not just to God, but to others. The second thing that God wants us to do with our brokenness is to offer it. You know, we took up an offering just a few minutes ago, and for many of us, you know, writing a check or giving that, that was a gift. That was saying, hey, God, you know, I want to give back to you because I recognize the role you've played in my life. And so it's not a whole lot, but I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to trust you to do something with it. Well, when we offer our brokenness to God, that's, that's far different from working hard to cover it up and to keep anybody else from seeing it. 
we're allowing God to work with it in whatever way he chooses, even though it may take way longer than we would like. You know, I think we live in a, a microwave culture. <laughs> I mean, we're really used to this, like, God, here is my brokenness, fix it. Okay, I would like for you to fix it. We wait another 30 seconds and nothing happens. We're like, wow, gosh, I guess God's not faithful. That's not how it works, folks. Some of us will struggle with our brokenness, with our weakness, with our vulnerability, with our temptation or whatever it is. We may struggle with that our entire life. It doesn't mean that God isn't faithful and he's not there to help us work on it. Sometimes it's a scar or a limp that we carry with us for the rest of our days. It could be a vulnerability that we struggle with over a period of decades, but whenever we yield to God, when we offer him our brokenness, then he can use it to bless us and to bless others. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So what he's saying here is that You know, in our weakness, in our brokenness, God comforts us, and he does that, not just so we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can learn how to comfort other people, so we can take our experience and use it to bless others. Most of you have heard Romans 8.28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And what that means is that even when bad things happen to us, even when we're hurt, even when we're taken advantage of, when we are betrayed, when we are wounded, God can use those experiences for our good and he can use them to bless other people as well. So practically speaking, there are some benefits that come when we entrust our brokenness to Jesus. First of all, it removes a barrier that separates us and puts distance between us and God. If we're trying to hide out from God, and not let him see what's going on in us, and we don't own our brokenness, and we don't start wrestling with it before God, then we're allowing it to separate us from him. Because he really wants to reach in and help us bring resolution and peace and direction to things in spite of our brokenness. When we entrust our brokenness to Jesus, healing begins, and growth starts occurring, and progress can be made. And when we entrust our brokenness to Jesus it allows other people to see God at work in us. Most of the time when we think about other people seeing us, we want them to see how good we have turned out, you know? And we might give God the glory because we have turned out really good and we have worked hard at this. But I think people are much more impressed when in our brokenness and in our vulnerability, they see God working in us in spite of our messed up, frail broken ways, and they are drawn to that because they know they themselves have some things that need some work. Some things that you might think about, ways that you could make progress in this area. Small groups, man, are an amazing way to begin to own and work with the stuff that ties you down and holds you back. Whether you're talking about a struggle with sin or a pattern of addiction or a wound, when you are with close friends who you can trust and who you can share with openly. And they can speak into your life and give you perspective. Sometimes we're our own worst critics. And the power of somebody else who you trust saying, you know what, I I think you've got this wrong. Have you ever thought about this perspective? I mean, that's life-giving. Jill and I are starting a small group this fall in Ashburn on Sunday nights just going to have a dinner, and I think a lot of the groups will start this way. It's just going to be like, hey, we just want to get to know each other, tell you what we're thinking our group would be like, and you could check us out. And so it really is a, a very doable proposition for you. You're not, you know, signing anything on the dotted line. You're just showing up and kind of seeing, is this something that we could maybe work into? And could it be something useful that God could use to work in our lives? Reading the Bible, just understanding over and over again how messed up the people are that God has used in Scripture. I mean, look at Peter. You know, he's who God uses to start the first century church. What a screw-up. I mean, you know, big game is his opportunity to shine for Jesus, and he denies him not just once, not just twice, but three times. Does that scare Jesus off? Does that make Jesus angry? No, Jesus lovingly says, Peter, 
feed my sheep. That's the approach God has to us. It doesn't surprise him that we're messed up. He knows that. And he loves us in spite of it. Let me give you another version of the story of daybreak. Because what I told you earlier about us ending up here is true. But that's kind of like the sanitized version that I tell people just because it's a whole lot less painful than going into the detail of the other stuff. Because I pastored the church for 12 years, and when I stepped in there to pastor the church, it was a pretty healthy church. It was thriving, and it had kind of a, a split a couple of years before. I knew the pastor of the church, and I was familiar with the church. I'd preached there some. It was a great church. And I came in, but over time, especially the last several years, we noticed that you know we're declining. We're not able to turn things around. And we tried a lot of different things. We explored our options. We thought about stuff. And every year we came back to the table planning. It's like, okay, well, we got less people, less money. What can we do to turn this thing around? Because it seems like God wants us to grow. And that felt, for me personally, like an incredible, epic failure. I mean, not many guys can put on their resume, I've killed one church. I'm kind of working on the second one now, behind the scenes. You know, this is not the kind of thing that I I would, you know, if if this was the secular world and it was a job, people go, oh, wow, you were leading a company. What happened to them? Um, I killed them, you know? I know from a theological perspective and from a factual perspective that, you know, not all of that weight rests on me. I do get that. I get that there were factors beyond my control. There were things outside of our church. There were forces, you know, within our church. I, I get all of that. But after... Two and a half years of a lot of prayer, a lot of journaling, and some paid professional counseling. You know, I'm really happy because there are only maybe two or three days out of the month that I feel like, wow, what a screw-up. You know, like, I have failed epically. And how in the world could God use me in any way? I think, you know, in business, people get fired, companies close. I get that. I was a business major. But when it comes to church stuff, it feels so much more monumental because we're talking about eternal destiny. And the people that you're letting down are people that you love dearly. So for me, this has been a real struggle because it feels like I failed them. I have to admit, and I'm really encouraged by this, that over time I found some ways to spot what God has been doing, not just in spite of that, but because of that. So I've had a chance to come alongside some other pastors and say, look, you know, I've led a church that ceased operation, and it's not fun. And here are like 20 or 25 factors that played into where we ended up. And I think it might be worth your while to look at your church, your ministry, and ask yourself, do I see these things going on with us? Because these are recognizable factors in churches that are declining, and it's not just my experience, it's the experience of a lot of other people. So I've been able to challenge and encourage some other pastors. I think humility would not have been something in the first 40 or 45 years of my life that people would have used to describe me. And now that's much more likely to be the case because I, you know, have definitely been humbled. I just realized this recently in a conversation with Nate Adcock, and it was just a very casual conversation, but it was like, oh my gosh, I missed that completely. Because of my experience, at least in part because of my experience with Daybreak, a couple of pastors that I've built close relationships over the years who pastored declining churches, they ended up leading their church to mergers. So one church, last time I preached there, there were 11 people there, including me and the piano player. I've got to tell you, the hymns were kind of sad that morning. That church was 135 years old, but I have told that pastor many times, your church has been dying for the last 35 years. I mean, your people, your youngest is like 88. And, you know, no wonder you don't have people that can work vacation Bible school or, you know, it's just, you know, they're doing everything they can to get there. And so they chose, thanks to Rob Shower's help, actually, they chose to merge with a new church start out in Purcellville. It was a merger because that was the most practical vehicle for conveying their resources. Their people were old. They didn't want to go to the church in Purcellville. They went to other churches. But they gifted that church about $800,000 in assets. And 
their pastor, they kind of gifted to another congregation. They gave him money out of the proceeds of that sale to pay for his salary for a couple of years so he could go and serve in another church effectively for free to that other church. And then this other church, I preached there a couple of years ago, and there might have been 40, 45 people. There was one older gentleman in that church who had been unhappy with the pastors for 30 years, and he had been trying to thwart them. I mean, like three or four pastors. And they were just full of conflict and strife, and they were going downhill. The, the offering was descending, and they didn't have the money to put like the $45,000 into the repairs on their roof, even though their building is worth like $2 million. So they have merged with another congregation that has several hundred people. That congregation, I know, was looking for land. They were trying to find a, a place where they could build in the, kind of the Sterling Cascades area, and just to buy the land, they were looking at four to six million dollars. And a church of 300 can't pay four to six million dollars for land and then put something on it. So they've been stuck, even though they're a big church, good-sized church, they've been stuck for years. And because of this merger with this smaller church that was declining, they have a new facility. They put like $400,000 cash into renovating the auditorium. And they'll probably start with four services because the auditorium only holds like 150 people. But I mean, that building which, again, for 25 years has been declining. All of a sudden, the neighbors are going to see this rocking building and tons of people coming in and serving the community because they made the courageous decision to merge. I can't take all the credit for that, but I'll try. So I'll take as much as you give me for that. But it's just an example of how God has redeemed something that to me seems like I want to hide it. I don't want other people to know about it. And yet, it's that very experience that has allowed me to be useful to some other churches. I think it would be wise for us, not just as individuals, but as a church, to think about our brokenness. And really much of chapter 2, the last seven or eight years of Gateway's life, has been struggle and plateau and some things that, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that's gone great, but there's also been a fair amount of stuff that hasn't gone well. For me, if I were to label my brokenness pretty easy. And I think for us as a church, it's actually it's not that hard. I'm late to the party, so you can't blame me for this brokenness. But, you know, I kind of married into this brokenness. This is my church family, and this is part of my story now. And so I think, you know, certainly lots of churches have this, and we have had at various times unresolved conflict. You know, stuff gets stirred up, but it doesn't get worked out. People just let distance take care of it, and they avoid somebody else. I think this is especially true for us in chapter 2, comfort with the status quo. Now, I know from Ed's perspective and from the elders' perspective and lots of people in leadership, it's like, gosh, this is our failure of leadership because we haven't been able to lead our church to grow and to turn the corner and to do this. And absolutely, that's part of it. But I really have not heard of many people calling Ed and going, Ed, man, we cannot be satisfied with the status quo. I will do whatever you need me to do. Tell me what you need me to do, man. I am there. So this is our corporate brokenness that we've been comfortable with. We've got enough people. You know, it pays the bills. We had enough workers in Kidstown. Felt pretty full in the auditorium. Moral failure. If you've been around Gateway for a while, you know that we had a couple of key leaders that had an epic moral failure. But you know what's pretty wild about that? Those kind of failures tend to split churches, blow up churches. I mean, mass of people typically would exit because they're the people who think you didn't deal with it severely enough and they're the others who think you weren't merciful enough. And Gateway didn't experience that. There might have been some people that were unhappy. There might have been some people that left, but it was very small. And in fact, these two families are now still together. Each family has stuck with it, and they have worked incredibly to rescue their families. And they are both involved in churches serving. And God has redeemed that situation. And that does not happen much. You have been witnesses, if you've been around here, to God doing something major in spite of brokenness. I think another kind of brokenness is a loss of key people. Many of you, if you've been here, you know, somebody in your small group, they move on. And it's bad enough when they're, 
transferred you know, for work and they have to go someplace else. But when they stay here and they just choose to go to another church, that hurts. I mean, there are some great reasons to change churches and we want people to follow God's prompting and leadership in that. But it still hurts. And I guarantee you it does not hurt anyone any more deeply. No one takes it more personally, I don't think, than it. Bad hires. Understand, I'm not talking about bad people. We had gifted people that we hired who were very effective in ministry, but maybe they were the wrong person for us, or it was the wrong time, or we had them in the wrong position, or we had wrong expectations, or we didn't handle them well, but for whatever reason, they did not work out. And that was painful for those staff members and for their families, and it was painful for our church family. And it's something we got to own. Okay, here's a brokenness. Not miscommunication, I just mean like communication. That's something that I don't know at any stage of the game anyone at Gateway would have said like, we are awesome with communication. This is just one of those areas that has not gone well and so from a staff perspective and from a leadership perspective, this has moved to a much higher priority. And my hope is that over the next year you're going to be seeing some changes, I mean like structural changes, systematic kind of changes that will help us do a better job of letting people know what's going on. Here's one. I don't have time to go through all of this. Ministry decisions. Decisions that we made that, you know, to add a ministry and it didn't work out or to cut one. And I mean, those kind of things, they leave us wounded and they hurt people. And it's just part of our history. Lost opportunity. You know, we weren't gutsy enough to move when the opportunity came. It's like, how much? Oh, I'm pretty sure that's not God's will. Hmm. Building program number one. Now, look, there were a lot of factors beyond the church's control. As most of you, if you've been tuned in, you know, uh, we started a building program, I don't know, was it six, seven, eight years ago? It looked like the timing was right, and there were lots of reasons to think it was. But as we moved forward and we raised funds and people gave big, the economy tanked. And it became impossible to get sewer to the church property. And you guys just don't look like the kind of people that can hold it for a couple of hours. And I, I don't see you using porta-potties, so it was kind of like, you know, we've got to have bathrooms. There is no way around this. And we're not going to pay an extra $3 million just to have flushing toilets. It's just not workable. And the economy hit and things dried up. And I've talked to Ed about this. You know, there were lots of things that contributed to that, but what he feels badly about is that as things started to change there wasn't a whole lot of communication. It was like, well, I don't know what to tell them. You know, we don't even know what the situation is, and I can give them bad news, but it's probably going to be worse next week. And so over a period of about six months to a year, it kind of gradually became obvious, and there was some communication, but nobody really wants to get up Sunday after Sunday and say, oh, by the way, everything is tanking on the building program, and, you know, everything we had hoped and dreamed for, forget about it, can't flush, so uh, we'll make the best of it. I asked Ed about this, and he responded in writing, and I want you to, to look at this. He said, at that point, you know, late in the building program, I could not see a clear path forward. Conditions were changing so rapidly and so dramatically in the market and specifically around our property, I kept waiting for some clarity so that we would know what to communicate to Gateway, and even so that we would know how to seek God. Of course, we should have sought God looking for the clarity. We should have communicated more, not less, throughout the process. This felt like a profoundly personal failure. And I know that's legit, how Ed feels about it. It's not all on him, and it's not that you guys made him feel that way, but when you're in leadership, it all kind of blows back on you. And we are committed to making sure this next program goes dramatically differently. All right, last one. Most of you know, 500. Short version of that story, Ed spent some time seeking God, went away, prayed a lot, thought about the next year, and felt like God was saying to him, 500. He's trying to figure out what that meant. Maybe it's a bonus from the elders. Maybe it's... No. And he felt convinced that God was saying, you guys, I want you to grow, and I, I want you to push and do everything you can as a church to reach 500. And that was weird for Ed because, as he mentioned over the last couple of weeks, he doesn't often hear from God. And I think never before had he heard like a specific number. And so he prayed about it, 
shared it with leadership. It worked its way through to the congregation. And as a congregation, hey, 500, we're going for this. And, and we didn't make it. I mean, like the needle didn't budge. I mean, we were at 250 or 300 and 500, you know, let's pray, let's... And we didn't go anywhere. And I think, you know, it's natural for people to go, okay, so what happened with that? Did you not hear God? Did you misunderstand him? Maybe it was 50. Got a zero wrong or something. You know, was it 510 years? So you got the timetable wrong? Or we didn't obey? Or you didn't execute? What's going on here, Ed? And I think if you ask him that, he'd say, ah, that's a great question. And I don't know. I, you know, I'm still wrestling with that. Did I not hear him right? Here's what I love about Ed. You know, my brand of brokenness, my go-to is failure. And I would look at that and go like, Wow. You went way out on a limb, brother, and it broke, and you had no safety net. I mean, you should have said 5%. God is calling us to grow by 5%. Pick something safe. But he didn't. He was trying to be obedient. I don't know why we didn't get there. You know, that's something that I imagine he will be struggling with for quite some time. But what I love about him is that he has the relentless optimism of a leader. And it wasn't like, okay, well, I'm going to hang low for a couple of years and just hope they forget that. Let's not try anything risky. Talk about risky. Let's build a building over there that costs millions of dollars. But I think Ed is committed to obeying God, and in spite of his brokenness, in spite of our church's brokenness, our failures, our flaws, and it's, we just got to own it. But he's willing to offer it to God. And if we're willing to do that, then in spite of our brokenness, and in fact, maybe sometimes through our brokenness, God is mighty. And he will work if we entrust that to him. I want to ask you to do something a little weird. You're going to stand and we're going to read together. Responsive reading. And this is mainly for those of you that consider Gateway your church home. So let's stand up. And I'm going to read the part that's not in bold print. And I want you to read the, the bold print part. And we're going to just share this as a prayer to God as a church family. Father in heaven, nothing is hidden from you. We are broken, wounded, marred, less than who we want to be. We are frail and bear the scars of life in an imperfect world. As a church family, we confess opportunities missed, impure motives, conflict poorly handled. We've fallen short of who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. We offer our brokenness to you and ask you to use it for your honor and glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. I want you to hear from a couple of people that have been at Gateway over the last couple of years, and it might be hard for you to relate to a pastor's story, but I'm hoping that it'll be easier for you to relate to their stories. Jan Zacharias has been at Gateway longer than Justine Rowland, but Justine I've known for longer than I've known Jan because she came from daybreak. So Jan, tell us about your story. As you look back over the last... I don't know, decades, 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. most of your life has not been marked by brokenness. It's been marked by success. True enough? Yeah. I came to the United States as an exchange student in my early 20s, and I stayed. And after gaining some important experiences along the way, I started my own real estate development company in 1989, so that's now 24 years ago. I pretty much rode the success trend upward. Waterford Development became quite successful. We developed probably over a billion dollars worth of real estate from upstate New York to Northern Carolina, although most of it was in the D.C. area. So that's as far as the company is concerned. Personally, I was quite celebrated. I was admired by my peers. I was written about in many newspapers and magazines, and I had built a great empire. And quite frankly, I had become a very good emperor. 
I thought my personal life was tracking pretty well, too. I had a beautiful second wife, three boys, plenty of money to do a lot with. We went on extravagant vacations, had great cars and a beach house. Yeah, it was a pretty successful story. All right, so what happened? There was a, uh, a shift in things for you at some point. Yeah, it all came crashing down in the latter part of 2006 when I discovered uh, that my wife was involved in an extramarital affair. And life as I knew it changed dramatically. Metaphorically speaking, it is as if you would have a large, beautiful vase and hold it up and throw it on the ground and it would smash in a gazillion pieces. And that is what my life had come to. There was an incredible amount of anger on my part and blame as well. I had to deal with a lot of shame. I felt very, very lost, depressed to the point where I considered committing suicide. So that's where that world had come to. What did you do about that? Well, I ended up doing something, Alex, that I never thought I would do. And that was asking for help. I found myself practically crawling across the cul-de-sac and knocked on a neighbor's door. And that door was opened. And as some of you know, that door belonged to Ed and Diane Allen. For weeks, we talked trying to make sense of it all. And I cried many, many, many tears of pain. And as the insanity of my life started to become clear to me, I cried even more. But this time of sadness and sorrow and regret. It was a hard time and a very revealing time at the same time. So subsequently, I turned my life over to God. And everything changed from there. I always thought that my life was kind of right side up. And then I turned out everything was really upside down. And when I turned my life over to Christ, it really, truly started to turn the right side up again. And since then, I have done a lot of work. I've done, come to look at my life very differently and I have made some fundamental shifts to turn my life from a place of empire building to kingdom building. So are there ways that you can see God having worked either through or in spite of or because of your brokenness in the, the time since then? Yeah. Pain and brokenness, quite frankly, have taken on a, a very different meaning to me. I now can look at pain as something really great and something very good and very beneficial. If I look back at my life and I see all the pain that happened to me, I'm really happy that I had to endure it because I would have never found myself in this place, in this seat, at this moment of time. Probably after the real estate crash of a few years ago, I would have been rebuilding my company or rebuilding my career and yet have another run of being a great emperor and never really found out that I turned out to be an emperor without clothes. So, yeah, it's... Definitely changed. It's changed. Good. Many of us have benefited from that change, so thanks. Justine, your story, how did you come to Christ and how did you end up at Gateway? I came to Christ in 1991, but it was really in 2000, through the story that I'm going to share today, that I came to know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him. And how did I end up in Gateway? Well, I fell in love with a very beautiful man, and uh, he swept me off my feet via eHarmony, and I made the journey, and here I am, and I celebrate my sixth year of marriage this December. I got to tell you, from the other side, this was, I've shared this with you. So Eric was in my small group, 
And he came in one, and he goes, I have found her. This is the woman I'm going to marry. And I was like, really? Tell us about that. And, you know, she's in Istanbul. She's gorgeous. She's like, how do you know that's not a 60-year-old man pretending to be a beautiful woman? I'm glad you turned out way better than what we expected. So he married up. So we're talking about brokenness this morning. How does your story connect with that idea? Well, first of all, I do want to just say thank you to my husband for allowing me to share this with you because I do want to honor him. And when I speak of another love, it should never take away from my love for him. And if I cry, it's not because I'm a girl, it's because the Holy Spirit is with me and I have not shared this story for many, many years. And I thank Alex for, I don't know why he chose me because I know there are others in the audience that have also lost loved ones, but this is a moment in time which I give all the glory and grace and thanks to God. So really my story, I mean in eight minutes to keep it short, but also give God the glory, started with being a young love. I was 25, 1998, and I met a young man who served the president in South Africa. I don't just talk funny, I am actually South African. (laughs) And he served the president. He was in the task force, and he was asked to go out on a mission at on the 4th of April. And they actually celebrated their centenary, and he asked me to stay home that day. And I said, there's no way I can bunk from work. I will be going to work, and I'll see you in the evening. Anyway, the day passed. It was raining, and we came home. We had a meal, and at 10.30, just to set the scene We had been dating for about two years. We were madly in love, and he asked me to marry him, and I absolutely adored him. And that evening, um, it was about 10.30, and I drove him to his barracks where they were going to go on this mission. And it was all top secret, can't share anything, but we drove through the rain, and I knew there was something different about this particular night. And um, I said goodbye to him. And 2.30 the next morning, I got a call from his best friend who was serving with him that night, and he said he was dead. And I'm Afrikaans, and I said, you're joking in Afrikaans? And he said, I'm not joking. And it was dark in my room, and I started screaming. And the depth of pain from the bottom of my stomach, and I knew that Nothing made sense, and I felt very numb and very overwhelmed by the sense of loss and pain of the suddenness of it. When you have fallen in love and you're free and your spirit is free and you're dancing and you have a great time, it's amazing. But when it's gone in that moment, it's like it doesn't make sense. Now, we were in love, but our love, the context of our love was the fact that he was serving, and the things that they saw and had to do, and the lives that they took. In South Africa, just to tell you, I mean, uh, with uh, Nelson Mandela in 1994, there were lots of killings, there was a lot of crime, and what these young men had to go out and do was nothing short of soul-destroying And he turned to drugs, a life of drugs and addiction. And I saw that through with him. And our our lives were very dark. There was a real darkness to what had transpired. But just before he was killed, shot and killed, he turned to Christ, back to Christ, should I say. Because he, at one stage in his life, had a choice of being a pastor or becoming a policeman. And he chose to be a policeman. But just before that, he chose to become, uh, to re, re, resign himself back to being God, a God follower. And God restored to him a dignity and a faithfulness to the, the calling that he had received, which was to serve the people. And he died with full honor to the point where they arranged a marching band to go down the street in his hometown and honor him. So with the loss, which was mind-numbing, and uh, the people in his barracks actually shaved all their hair off 
because these men are forever living in a place where it's life or death. Every single night they go out and they could lose their lives and that's the life that they lead. And they choose drugs or alcohol, something to wash it away, but that's the reality. When I lost him, I went to his barracks and they'd all shaved their heads and we went through the whole funeral and uh, said goodbye to him. But I saw how... It was such a blackness and a darkness, and God had restored to us a hope that everything was coming right, and there was stability back in our relationship. And then when he took him, the sadness was so much more overwhelming because we had had hope, and now it was gone, truly gone. And there was no door to knock at, no window to cry under, and he was just gone. You know, there's a lot to be said about it, but for all intents and purposes, he was the love of my life, and he was taken very suddenly. But I saw God work tremendously in the way that he can bring uh, restoration to a soul in the right time. But one thing that you asked me to talk about was the immediate impact on me, and that was to recognize the power of life. You know, what does God give us that is so profound, and that is life? When I look into people's eyes and you, and you hug each other, it's that life. And when someone is dead, and I saw him at the funeral, and I guess I had to because of closure. I did the whole James Bond thing of somebody's taken his passport and he's gone into this big you know, investigative adventure. And because of, you just can't deal with it. It's, it's very hard to find closure. I realized why I was allowed to see him in the coffin and I know it sounds morbid but I'm hoping to bring you encouragement in that he had no life in that body yet his life was with the Lord because he did know Christ and so therefore my the encouragement I found and the impact that was direct to me was to recognize what life was worth and that we should cherish one another and spend a life more focused on encouraging that flame in one another. Thanks, Justine. I was thinking when you said that, I think the phrase was that your hearts had danced. That made me think of Scott Causey. And, you know, we've lost other people here as a church family, Bill Malcolm, and we will lose more. So it's encouraging to think about, you know, the value of life and the fact that for someone who belongs to the Lord, that's not the end of it. There's more to come. I appreciate you guys sharing. This kind of gets us thinking about brokenness and how God might use that. Uh, Jan, for you, I asked you before we started if you were to label your brokenness. And so what did you come up with on your sign there? For me, uh, Alex, it will be worthlessness. Okay. And Justine? Mine was sadness. Thank you guys for sharing. I appreciate that. You're welcome. We're going to take some time here at the end of the service to, I hope, respond to God and to begin that process of owning and offering up our brokenness. So a couple of things that are going to go on. The band, the worship team is going to come back up and we're going to have some time to sing. And you can just stand and sing, think, pray, listen for God's voice. That would be great. I hope that you might take the bold step of coming up front, and we've got uh, index cards and pens here across the front, and that you might go through this exercise of literally naming some of the brokenness that you've experienced. And you can be vague if you want, or you can be very specific and fold the card up. Nobody else is going to see it. But if you want to lay it at the foot of the cross here, as kind of a a symbolic acting out of your decision to offer it to God and to say, I don't know what this is going to look like for you to use this brokenness, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let go of it, and I'm going to to just, you know, I don't want anybody else to see it, but I'm going to put it here. And it's yours now, and I need your help with that. If you would be bold enough to do that, I think God would honor it. Uh, We also want to give people the opportunity to take communion this morning and to remember our brokenness is not a problem to God because of what Jesus already did on the cross for us. It's because of his death on the cross that his grace and power 
is available, and it's so much greater than our brokenness. So while we sing these next couple of songs, we want you to take some time to reflect, maybe to come forward and to own your brokenness and to spend some time remembering how Christ was broken for us. Let's just give this time to God. Let's pray. Father, your goodness and mercy and power overwhelms us, especially when we come to grips with our brokenness in whatever form it might be. But we know because of your power, because of your grace, there is hope. And you somehow are able in spite of our brokenness, or maybe even through our brokenness, to use us to bless others and to to change us. So we ask you to be at work this morning. Change us. Be at work among us. Be at work in our church. You've called us to such audacious plans. And there's no way we can pretend to be the people who have it all together. We just need to be honest before you if we're ever going to be useful to you. So we confess our brokenness to you this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that on the night before you were crucified, you took the bread and you told your followers, when you eat this, remember my body that was broken for you. And then you took the cup and you said, this represents my blood that was shed for you so you could be forgiven. So this morning, as we take communion, we Remember you, Lord. And we pray in your name. Amen.